Hello, and welcome to ABS in Mind, the podcast from the staff here at DebtWire ABS. We'll take you behind the scenes of the asset-backed securities markets and the loans they help finance. I'm Maura Weber-Sadovi, and I'll be hosting today. My guests today are Gigi Dixon, Head of External Engagement for Wells Fargo Diverse Segments, Representation and Inclusion, and Robert James II of Carver Development, an affiliate of Carver State Bank in Savannah, Georgia. And Robert is also chairman of the National Bankers Association. Welcome. I wanted to talk to you both about Wells Fargo's March 2020 pledge to invest up to 50 million in Black-owned banks. Wells Fargo recently noted that communities of color have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and that the investment was part of its effort to help generate a more inclusive recovery. I'd like to take this opportunity to learn more about that and also step back and discuss the state of commercial real estate lending in communities of color. Gigi, to kick off our discussion, can you tell us a little bit about how this Wells Fargo program came about? Sure, Mara. It's uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you today and to to join our uh, partner and friend, Robert, uh, to talk about this topic, which we think is very important at Wells Fargo. Last year on March 10th, we announced a pledge to invest up to 50 million uh, uh, in equity investments in black owned banks. And part of that uh, investment uh, would give those banks access to a dedicated Wells Fargo relationship team. Uh, And our goal is to provide financial, technological, product development expertise uh, and other assets of Wells Fargo to help those banks uh, to grow and to uh, be even more capable of serving the communities and their constituents than they are today. Uh, Equity, we thought, was a great way to, uh, to really help them Look at their strategic plan and and fast forward on uh, activating against that those plans. Uh, we have invested so far in six uh, MDIs, and we're finalizing a group of additional MDIs that will uh, that will be announced hopefully within the next few weeks. Um, the six that we've invested in are Broadway Federal, uh, which is of course pending a merger uh, with City First, and it's going to create the biggest African American. MDI in the country. Uh, we are looking forward to working with the combined entity uh, once the uh, the merger is complete and uh, all everything is finalized uh, in helping them to um, set the stage for the next phase of, of that particular um, financial institution. Uh, we've also uh, invested in Citizens Savings Bank and Trust, which is the oldest uh, and continuously operating African-American MDI in the United States. Uh, And we have a great opportunity to uh, work with them on financial health curriculum in their communities and some other uh, programs that they have uh, stated they really are uh, excited about expanding uh, as a result of the equity investment. Harbor Federal is another, uh, which is the only African-American um, MDI managed uh, bank in New York, in the New York metro area. Uh, and, you know, the, the big story about Carver that really stuck to us is that uh, they're mission based and they are reinvesting 80 cents of each dollar uh, back into the community and its local markets in New York and the um, uh, Harlem area. And then there's Commonwealth Bank, um, which um, we've invested in. And uh, they're they're a mission based as well. The, the, the interesting thing about all of the MDIs is truly 
how they approach their business, their market area that they're serving, and that they are highly mission-based across the board. Uh, the last two of the first six are Optus Bank in Columbia, South Carolina, which is uh, located near a military base there in Columbia, has nationwide options. Uh, and um, through our relationship, we hope to help them make it easier for their customers to bank with Optus no matter where they are uh, in the United States. And then M&F Bank, uh, which is the second oldest African-American-owned bank in the U.S., uh, it's 113 years old, um, and uh, we were pretty impressed with the business plan and the leadership across the board of these MDIs. But the most important thing is that we realize that $1 of new deposits um, with these MDIs um, equals $1 of new loans, but $1 of new equity investment equals $10 of new loans. And so we're thinking that these investments are going to multiply the reach and the capability of these MDIs, uh, and, and we're looking forward to it. I would I would just end on the first question by saying that um, core to the way that we have structured uh, these equity investments is the desire to help these MDIs maintain ownership of their organization and also um, give them a broader reach into Wells Fargo. Our assets, our subject matter expertise. Uh, so that they uh, can leverage um, our assets uh, to stabilize themselves and to continue to grow. Is there any sense for how this might impact real estate lending, either you know residential or commercial? Our listeners and readers like to know about you know that kind of financing. Just curious, is, is, are there any strings attached to the way it will be, um, the money will be spent? Yeah, what we did, um, we conducted... Um, of course, the due diligence for the investments, for the equity investments. And in that process, each one of the MDIs did present their plans for the use of funds. And uh, across the board, uh, there's interest in growth in the community, financial stability for their customers, broader reach uh, to customers, uh, financial health, and also housing affordability, where some of the MDIs are very focused on uh, mortgage lending and um, housing development, community development. Uh, so where their uh, strategic priorities were uh, pointing in that direction, then absolutely we believe that the investments are going to help them enter new markets, expand their locations, uh, design new products, uh, and also uh, to help with community growth in their um, in the communities where they are located. And I'm interested in the timing. I, I think it was, you said, March 2020 when the pledge was first um, came out. Um, now, the, 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 like the, the issue of equity in, in really in, in many spheres came up with the George, was raised, you know, yet again, I guess, with the George Floyd uh, protests and what happened there um, in Minneapolis. Was it, how, how did that sort of play into this or did it? You know, that's interesting because we had actually begun to build our strategy uh, and shape this initiative prior to um, the George Floyd killing and uh, and even prior to the COVID pandemic. Uh, I think that those um, incidences, though, have placed an even greater focus on the need for and the importance of MDIs in the sector in communities that are um, disproportionately impacted by the kind of activities that we've seen over the past year. Uh, black communities, um, you know, are just disproportionately impacted. It, and I think that what I often hear some of our friends in the advocacy space say is, 
you know, when other communities catch a cold, the black community has the flu. And so in this particular instance, the MDI is an anchor to its community and to the customers that it's serving. And it has the ability to serve customers in a very unique way, in ways that larger institutions um, sometimes have a hard time with. Also, the MDIs have established trust. They have trust in those communities and they're able to reach uh, unbanked and underbanked constituencies that we're all really trying to reach so that we can change the financial uh, future of individuals and businesses um, in the communities where these institutions exist. So to answer your question really briefly, yes, we think that those uh, the, the incidences over the past year have amplified and kind of um, created a, a, a huge groundswell of support and increased knowledge of this sector of MDIs and the importance of the sector. But for Wells Fargo, we had started uh, prior to um, to those uh, those incidences in, in 2020. It started this beforehand. We made the announcement in March, which means, you know, we had several months of planning um, and, uh, you know, getting approvals and uh, designating the funds for the initiative. And, uh, and then the announcement was in, in March. Will there be more? How do you expect to grow this program? I think that's an excellent question, Mara. And, and what I would say is that we are looking for ways to reach into all diverse communities. Uh, so there is the possibility of more. We certainly want to use this as the beginning and a platform that would build a model for how we go about uh, making these investments and um, applying a holistic model to the investments uh, such that uh, the MDIs can sustain, grow, uh, and move into new markets uh, that they're interested in for themselves. Yep. Robert, um, I want to turn to you about your thoughts about how this will work. But uh, first, can you tell us a little bit about your background and, and the history of Carver? Sure, Maura. Thank you so much for inviting me tonight. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you uh, and to, to be with my friend Gigi from Wells Fargo. Um, and thank you for covering such an important topic and bringing attention to Black-owned banks and MDIs uh, to your listeners. My name, again, is Robert James II. I'm the president of Carver Development, uh, which is an affiliate of Carver State Bank, um, to be, not, not to be confused with Carver Federal, our friends in New York. Uh, Carver State Bank is located in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, we are um, a 94-year-old institution. We started in 1927, and um, our Black-owned bank that's been in that community uh, serving the the black community, low to moderate income community in South Georgia uh, for all of, all of that time. In my role at the bank, I run our uh, federal new markets tax credit business, which is a uh, pretty neat federal program that's designed to uh, stimulate commercial investment and commercial development in uh, distressed communities. And so our bank, which is in addition to being a Black-owned bank, we're also a certified community development financing institution, a CDFI. And that means that we have a mission of serving uh, low-income communities and specified target markets. And so because we're a CDFI and because we're mission-oriented, uh, we've been successful in winning a couple of allocations of federal new markets tax credits uh, through competition at the Treasury Department level. And I've had the privilege of deploying 
um, about $65 million worth of new markets tax credits um, and still have, have quite a bit to go. Uh, we've got a total of 80 million that we are um, stewards over. And we deploy those credits into uh, primarily commercial real estate projects. Um, so manufacturing facilities, uh, primarily healthcare facilities, community facilities such as boys and girls clubs. And we do that across this, the entire state of Georgia uh, in urban and rural communities that are underserved. In addition to my role at Carver State Bank, I'm also the chairman of the National Bankers Association, which is the nation's advocacy organization on behalf of minority depository institutions or MDIs. And so I'm really at the epicenter of a lot of conversations that are happening right now uh, between institutions like Wells Fargo and Black-owned banks and uh, the process of, of attracting and raising capital for our institutions as we try to grow and expand nationally. I often hear about, you know, ta tax credits and, and different uh, federal programs for communities of color. Um, and I'm just wondering, uh, where, what about balance sheet lending, you know, CMBS lending? Why is that not discussed as much? What is the difference and why, why is that not happening in some of these communities that could very well, you know, really do well with that? Sure. Sure. Um, you know, thank you for the question, Maura. I, I think there's a number of reasons um, that you see disinvestment uh, or underinvestment in minority communities uh, that are systemic in their nature um, that have to do with, you know, sort of decades of redlining practices that were um, really endorsed by the federal government that created a flight of capital from many black and brown communities across the country uh, that caused disinvestment and made it difficult for banks to make profitable loans. But one of the other issues that you have is just a question of scale. So African-American-owned banks, black-owned banks control roughly $6 billion in total assets. And that's as compared to several trillion dollars in total assets in the overall banking space. And so our, our banks, the ones that are, are located in the communities uh, that have a mission to serve these communities uh, are just starved for capital and have historically been uh, unable to access the capital markets in ways that other banks have. And so that's why it's so critical that we um, are now starting to see significant equity investments from banks like Wells Fargo into our institutions, particularly designed in ways that allow us to still maintain control of the bank, uh, still uh, execute on our business plan, and get that equity capital into our, onto our balance sheet so that we can leverage it and, and do what Gigi talked about, which is you know, make that 10 to 1 leverage and get the, get the capital into the communities that need it. So I think that uh, when we sort of complete this round of capital investments and injections from large banks, such as Wells Fargo, that you will see a lot more commercial real estate investing on behalf of, on the part of 
uh, minority banks and Black-owned banks in the communities that we serve. It's not that we don't do it. It's just that we haven't been able to do it at the scale um, that's needed to really transform communities. Do you see even securitized lending uh, growing in those communities or, or what would need to happen for that? You know, absolutely. I, um, I, I, just, I was just on a call with um, a number of our CEOs. We have a weekly call uh, that we invite all the CEOs of the banks to just to talk about what's happening in the space because there's so much going on right now. And, you know, one of the things that we all as a group are looking towards is the fact that when we complete our process of, of closing investments from um, the Wells of the world, um, we're, we're going to have to deploy the capital and we really want to scale up. And one of the things that we're looking to do is to find ways to collaborate more um, amongst our banks. Uh, if you just look at the black banks, there's only 18 black uh, controlled MDIs in the country, 16 Black-owned banks, uh, 18 Black-run banks. And so that's out of um, about 4,500 banks. So we're a very small part of the, of the financial services ecosystem when it comes to banking. And so in order for us to start making the kinds of impacts that you're talking about and to get into, for example, securitized lending uh, in a much greater way, we need, number one, equity capital. Uh, which is being provided in, in some measure by Wells and, and others. But we also need to, to begin to collaborate so that we can, you know, do even more at scale and begin to do things like securitize lending um, and build products that are of interest to larger investors where we can bundle them and then sell them out into the markets and then create more liquidity so that we can get back into the markets that need, the, that need these resources and make even more loans available. Was there a, um, a, a period of time in uh, Black-owned banking when you could easily walk into a bank and as a person from those communities and and, and get a, you know, I don't know, a, a couple million dollar loan to buy a building where you would have a, a manufacturing site or, or, or some other business? Uh, are, that we're trying to get back to? Uh, or is this like new ground that you're breaking or hoping to break? You know, like, was there a better era? <laughs> yeah, well, there, there's a couple of different ways to look at that, uh, Maura. I mean, our banks exist because our people were systemically shut out of the mainstream economy, right? And so in, in our bank's case, in 1927, our founder, who was a man named Louis B. Tour, he was a real estate uh, investor. He was a provider of housing, affordable housing uh, in single family homes. And he was one of the first black uh, people in the state of Georgia to be licensed as a real estate broker. And he found that he couldn't uh, provide the type of housing that was required because he couldn't get bank loans. And so he started a private bank um, to support his real estate investments. And uh, about 20 years after he founded the bank, it became a state chartered bank, um, again, to help drive more availability of, you know, primarily residential mortgages, but also quite a bit of commercial real estate. And, and, in, and in the black banks, 
historically that commercial real estate is a lot of that's been churches uh, because those have been the com, you know quote unquote commercial enterprises that have had the most success in our communities have been the churches and so um, you know most of our banks particularly those who've been around for a long time um, have very large portfolios of church lending and that's historic and there's a reason for that because that was the 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 sort of enterprise in the community that was most widely supported by the community and uh, most able to you know, qualify for loans and then provide services and, 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 and a respite for the communities that we serve. So, you know, yes, uh, the qualified entities in our communities could come in and still can, you know, come in and get, and get fair treatment and get loans from our banks. Um, and, and, and not just in the church lending space, but in all kinds of commercial enterprises, whether it, you know, whatever businesses were uh, available to us, you know, those businesses uh, were financed in large part by the Black-owned banks. And, and so we are trying to get back to that in, in some respects, Mara, where we're providing more uh, capital to a new generation of entrepreneurs, a uh, new generation of business people who have um, incredible ideas for how to transform communities. And uh, our banks are trying to scale up uh, to meet that demand. Are you, um, can you talk at all about what, you know, whether you're interested in this Wells Fargo program, how, you know, what's, what the status of your relation, Carter, Carter um, State Bank's uh, relationship is to it and what, what you might hope to do if, if, if you're involved in the program? Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. So, um, you know, in, in my, in my new day job as being chairman of the NBA, I have, um, I've been spending so much time trying to help everybody else that I haven't had time to finish all my own negotiations. Uh, but but uh, Gigi knows that um, uh, we're we're close. We can see the goal line. I can put it that way uh, for uh, capital injection from uh, Wells Fargo, and we're very hopeful that those conversations will um, will will be closed up here pretty soon, and, and we'll be able to to make an announcement. Um, her team's been good to work with, and I think we, you know, they they're, they're tough negotiators, though, Mara. They don't, they don't, they don't. <laughs> this is not, this is not a, this is not a gift. Uh, they're tough negotiators, so so we've had to go through a lot of uh, jump through a lot of hoops in terms of showing our business plan and and, and making sure that folks are comfortable. But uh, we're we're close and are really looking forward to being able to really put that capital to work. Um, so our plan is to um, uh, just quickly, our mission is to provide the building blocks to financial freedom. That's our mission statement. And in order to do that, we have identified four building blocks. Uh, we're going to help people build their money. We're going to help them build their homes. We're going to help them build their businesses and help them build their communities. And we're going to apply the Wells Fargo capital across our mission statement. Uh, in all four areas. So we're going to uh, improve and digitize our uh, consumer platform in terms of helping people access and build money uh, and, and use it more wisely. We're going to help people access uh, in home mortgages, single family home ownership opportunities, which is the greatest source of wealth creation in the United States economy. We're going to help people build businesses. Uh, again, there's so much entrepreneurial talent in the black community. And we're gonna to try to unlock that uh, with this new capital. 
And then finally, we're going to help people build community, um, doing that kind of commercial real estate investing and lending uh, that so many of your listeners are interested in. Uh, we're going to build up communities with this capital. So we're excited. Uh, we're looking forward to dotting the I's and crossing the T's and closing out our investment with Wells Fargo. What sort of, um, the, in terms of the commercial real estate component, you know, that's sort of what we always narrow in on. Uh, do, do, what what kind of loans might you hope to do more of with this an equity investment? That's a great question, Maura. So one of the things that we were able to do in this past year uh, that's been publicly announced is um, I was able to have the great privilege of meeting a syndicate of Black-owned banks uh, in the first ever financing for a major American professional sports franchise uh, that's been done by a consortium of all Black banks. So uh, the Atlanta Hawks franchise in Atlanta, Georgia, just up the road from us, uh, uh, wanted to do something significant. And uh, we were able to put together a syndicate to uh, refinance their practice facility. Uh, It's a $35 million syndicated loan. And while that's not unusual, you know, our banks have gotten together historically to do uh, commercial financing on a syndicated level. Uh, what is unusual about it is that um, the institution came to us, the Hawks came to us. And so we're really looking to build on that model, um, Maura, and not just do it for, you know, professional sports teams, and, and, and um, but to do it for those large-scale affordable housing projects or those uh, large-scale commercial developments that are going to be job creators and job generators. And so we're working on similar models that, again, will not just involve a bank, you know, our own individual bank like Carver, but uh, involve a collaboration of Black banks across the country so that we can join forces and inject capital into the communities that need them uh, need the capital the most. Oh, that's exciting. So is that a financing to build the property? Uh, no, they, they, they use a, a, a bond financing uh, vehicle to build the property. And uh, we're taking out uh, the, the bonds and, and providing them with a, a more permanent uh, source of capital. Well, good luck. That sounds exciting. Um, just uh, we're, we're getting close to the end of uh, our time, but I just wanted to ask a step back and just ask you both in terms of sort of the state of um, black owned banks in the U.S. Um, and, and commercial real estate lending. What is your hope for the future? I mean, is there a need for um, for more, for building more or just building back strength to the existing uh, banks that um MDIs that 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 are already out there. Well, you know, I'll take a stab at that. And Robert, of course, is going to be the uh, subject matter expert as chairman of the National Bankers Association. But I I really love the mission of the National Bankers Association, which they have been with us every step of the way in developing our strategy and executing the investment committee. Um, their um, Immediate past executive director is on our external advisory, along with John Rogers from Ariel Investments uh, and Aaron Baitru from the Milken Institute, uh, which they've they've stood with us every step of the way. But the National Bankers Association is all about creating an inclusive financial services industry and a vibrant business environment 
for minority financial institutions, their customers, and the communities they serve. These MDIs are all about their customers and the communities they serve. And for that reason, we definitely need to protect and preserve the legacy of these institutions. They're very important pillars in the community. Uh, if they want to grow and create branches or locations beyond the immediate uh, geography where they're located today, uh, given the uh, constituency, the customer base that they are able to attract in ways that are unique and different from, um, you know, from larger institutions, and given the level of trust their legacy has built in the minority community, I, I think they should expand, and, and we want to be a part of that expansion. Uh, we also want to be a part of their technological advancements uh, because, you know, we have a lot of that capability. Uh, and so, Mara, uh, I would say whatever works best and whatever is most uh, meaningful for the strategic plan and the growth plan of these MDIs, Wells Fargo wants to be a part of that. Uh, and I'm just pleased uh, to be able to represent um, executive leaders, our CEO, Charlie Scharf, uh, and his operating committee members who have all uh, been extremely uh, deliberate and very engaged uh, uh, with this work uh, in this opportunity uh, for Wells Fargo and for the MDIs. Nice. Um, and, and, and Robert, what do, do you see, uh, uh, you know, more Black-owned banks in the future or do, just do you want to see stronger ones? Maura, we would like to see more and stronger um, yeah, Black-owned oh. banks. I think, um, you know, we we don't have enough bank charters um, that are black owned and black controlled, but we also need to strengthen the banks that are here. So, um, you know, as as chairman of the of the National Bankers Association, um, I'm focused on four main ob objectives. Number one, uh, we've been talking about it today. It's more capital to our banks, um, and that's to strengthen our members so that we can then turn around and strengthen our communities. Number two is to raise the profile of our uh, association and our, and our members. Um, and you're helping us do that today with this incredible podcast. Um, our banks have great stories to tell. Uh, we make a difference in people's lives every day. And uh, we wanna make sure that those stories get out there and that people know um, the great work of NBA member banks. Um, the third objective I have is to you know, improve the infrastructure of the MBA itself, which again, you know, Gigi talked about that, you know, great leadership we've had in the past and, and the great leadership we want to have in the future, um, again, in service to our banks uh, so that they can be a better service to the community. And then my fourth objective is uh, to improve and increase collaboration among our banks so that we can um, get stronger together and make the community stronger um, and, and really, you know, finally try to eliminate this racial wealth gap. So we want to see more banks. We want to see stronger banks uh, because we want to see a stronger community, which is going to help raise the entire American economy uh, as, as we raise the Black community up. People or businesses in these communities are starving for capital. Is there one main hurdle that you know, you're, you're sort of chipping away at? You know, that's a great question. I think it's, it's a lot of it is um, just knowledge about how the financial system works. Um, we have seen this um, in very 
uh, in a very acute way in terms of how the, the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP program, has rolled out this past year. Um, and I, I have personally experienced this because, you know, at a certain point, at various points, I've had to personally roll up my sleeves and, and get in there with our uh, incredible team of bankers down in Savannah and work with customers through applications and get applications uploaded and make sure that people are getting served with these PPP loans. And what I have found is, um, and, and we've done, you know, over 80% of our PPP loans went to Black-owned businesses. Uh, almost every customer, I don't care if they were the local barber or if they were an Ivy League educated doctor or lawyer, um, almost every customer needed some additional handholding and some walking through the process. And so one of the things that we've been able to do is just educate people about um, some, some basics. And I think that's one of the biggest impediments um, that we've seen. And so, you know, we'll be dedicating some of our capital to, you know, making sure that people have access to information um, and understand how the system works so that they can, uh, you know, take their income and, and, and turn it into wealth. Sounds like a good goal. <laughs> um, well, I we're going to have to stop here for now, but uh, we'd love to have you you back in the future sometime uh, to hear how the program is going and the MDIs are progressing. Um, but uh, Gigi and Robert, I really want to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and and I uh, appreciate your coming. Mara, thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to coming back to give you a progress report. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> I'd love that. Thank you, Mara. Yeah. I look forward to it. Well, have a good night. Good night. Thanks for listening to ABS in Mind. If you're hungry for the skinny on asset-backed bonds and residential and commercial mortgage debt, consider DebtWire.com or tune in here to our podcasts. Also, look to us on social media.